Well, good morning, everyone out there in virtual GCF land uh, and those who are here in person, welcome. Uh, we are going to begin our two-part series on John Calvin, uh, Church History Biographies. I'm only doing two parts on Calvin, and we are only going to scratch the scratches on the surface of all of what there is available on John Calvin, his life and work. Now, um, before I get too far into this, I would like to, and you probably can't see this too well, but I'm holding up a book here called The Church of the Renaissance and Reformation, and it's a relatively short book. Um, I'm pretty sure it's out of print. Um, I did buy the last hardcover copy on Amazon this morning. I think there may be some in paperback. You can probably find used copies. But I highly recommend this book. It's easy reading. It gives you an excellent introduction to the historical, uh, social, political, and religious climate beginning with late Middle Ages Europe and leading up to the Renaissance and Reformation. And it talks about all the all the forces that were going into the development of the Renaissance and Reformation in a brief survey. And again, it's very easy reading, so I highly recommend it. There are separate chapters on Luther, on Calvin, and uh, a lot of... Okay, so the author's name is Carl Dannenfeldt, D-A-N-N-E-N, F-E-L-D-T, and the book has a bright orange cover, so uh, I highly recommend this book, and we'll, we'll try to make a few copies available uh, through our book ministry if you're interested in reading it. Okay, next slide. So John Calvin is one of the best-known names in Protestantism. His great theological work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, remains one of the seminal works of Protestant theology. The theological approach advanced by Calvin has come to be known as Calvinism. Calvin's belief in the absolute sovereignty of God over all aspects of the created world helped define Reformed theology. Calvin introduced new forms of church government and liturgy in the church in Geneva, Switzerland, and these innovations were to influence congregational, Presbyterian, and Reformed churches throughout the world. John Calvin was born on July 10th, 1509 at Noyon, in northern France. His father, Gerard, was a notary and served as secretary to the local bishop. At the age of 14, the young John, already religiously inclined, entered the ancient and famous University of Paris. Next slide. Calvin soon, sh soon showed himself an eager, serious, and able student of theology. In 1528, he received his Master of Arts degree and on the command of his father turned to the study of law. 
And if you recall from our uh, a survey of Martin Luther's life, Luther found himself in the same situation. His father uh, wanted Luther to pursue the study of, of law and become a lawyer. So Calvin also undertook the study of Greek and was strongly influenced by Renaissance humanism, not to be confused with today's secular humanism. In 1532, he published at his own expense a learned commentary on the Roman author Seneca's book On Clemency, a work on political ethics. So he was, by Renaissance humanism, we're talking about the emphasis on the study of non-church, non-religious subjects. So he was reading Greek and Latin authors on all kinds of different subjects, not just religious uh, works. Next slide. As a young man, Calvin was affected by the emerging Reformation ideas and movements that were beginning to bring about changes in the religious climate of Northern Europe. Historians believe that Calvin experienced a religious conversion sometime between 1529 and 1533. Calvin wrote about his experience of conversion to Christ in a commentary on the Psalms. Next slide. In his commentary on the book of Psalms, Calvin portrayed his conversion as a sudden change of mind brought about by God. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, next slide, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor. In another account, Calvin wrote, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, and much more at that which threatened me in view of eternal death, I, duty-bound, made it my first business to betake myself to your way condemning my past life, not without groans and tears. Next slide. And now, O oh Lord, what remains to a wretch like me, but instead of defense, earnestly to supplicate you not to judge that fearful abandonment of your word according to its deserts, from which in your wondrous goodness you have at last delivered me. Many historians and Calvin scholars believe that it was about this time that Calvin left the Roman Catholic Church. Next slide. Martin Luther's teaching reached France, and Calvin wrote of the impact this had on him. He, that is God, tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years, for I was strongly devoted to the superstitions of the papacy, that nothing less could draw me from such depths of mire. And so this mere taste of true godliness that I received set me on fire with such a desire to progress that I pursued the rest of my studies more coolly, although I did not give them up altogether.
Next slide. In 1533, Calvin's name was associated with Nicholas Kopp, the rector of the University of Paris, who was charged with heresy. Kopp had also been uh, discussing and reading the works of some of the various reformers. Calvin was a close friend of Kopp. Kopp had spoken out on the need for reform and renewal in the Roman Catholic Church in November of 1533. So Kopp was forced to leave France and fled to Basel in Switzerland, and Calvin went into hiding. Next slide. In mid-October 1534, Calvin finally left France and moved to Switzerland. Church reforms had been promoted in Basel by Johannes Ecolampadius and Ulrich Swingley, and Switzerland provided a much more hospitable environment for reformers. If you recall from um, the survey of Ulrich Zwingli, um, he had been active throughout Switzerland, other reformers from different countries had at various times been in Switzerland. Switzerland was really kind of a melting pot for these uh, up and coming reformers. There was a lot of freedom. There was a lot less uh, threat of uh, political sanction or military action against them. And Calvin found for himself that Switzerland was uh, going to be a, a fruitful and relatively safe place for him to pursue what he believed God had called him to do. In March of 1536, Calvin published the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which would become the classical statement of Protestant theology. Next slide. The in Institutes was, was intended as an expanded catechism and the structure of this work initially uh, followed the structure of the catechisms that were prevalent in that day. The first edition of 1536 in Latin consisted of only six chapters and explained the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, and Church Government. Calvin went on to greatly enlarge the work in the second edition, published in Strasbourg in 1539, and eventually he published the work in French in Geneva in Switzerland in 1541. Throughout much of his life, he continued revising and working on the institutes. Um, it was kind of a work in progress throughout much of his life. Next slide. The work shows Calvin's legal training as well as his deep piety. And in fact, I think as you, you know, as we look at Calvin's life and his work, his training in the law and just the kind of person that he was um, led him to really focus on things like church government, uh, how people should live their lives as Christians, and um, how society should be structured overall. Theologically, the Institutes is filled with an odd awareness of the majesty and sovereign power of the Almighty God. The scripture contained for Calvin the all-sufficient authoritative truth 
upon which the church rests, as well as the entire pattern of its life. So we have talked in previous sessions about the idea within Roman Catholicism of the magisterium, the idea that church authority, church councils, uh, the teachings of the church, and the scriptures all are authoritative for life and practice for the Christian. Calvin, like the other reformers, looked to the word of God alone uh, as, as the beginning for a Christian in terms of learning about how to live as a Christian and how to worship and so forth. Next slide. Calvin later wrote about the Institutes, I labored at the task especially for our own Frenchmen, for I saw that many were hungering and thirsting after Christ, and yet that only a very few had any real knowledge of him. Calvin decided to leave Switzerland and go to Strasbourg, a city in eastern France that was a free city in the Holy Roman Empire and friendly to reformers. Strasbourg was on the very border between France and Germany, um, and so it had been influenced a lot by Reformation ideas. Next slide. Due to the movement of French and imperial troops throughout Europe, Calvin was forced to detour south back into Switzerland to the city of Geneva. In Geneva, he met William Farrell, and you can see the picture there of William Farrell. It's a little bit dark, uh, but hopefully you can make it out. Um, Farrell was a French reformer, and Farrell, like many other reformers, had fled to Switzerland to find safety. Farrell implored Calvin to stay with him in Geneva. Next slide. Calvin later recalled, then Farrell, who was working with incredible zeal to promote the gospel, bent all his efforts to keep me in the city. And when he realized that I was determined to study in privacy in some obscure place and saw that he gained nothing by entreaty, he descended to cursing and said that God would surely curse my peace if I held back from giving help at a time of such great need. Next slide. Calvin continued, terrified by his words and conscious of my own timidity and cowardice, I gave up my journey and attempted to apply whatever gift I had in defense of my faith. The church in Geneva made Calvin a pastor in 1537, although he was not formally ordained. After all, what church was what established Protestant church was there to ordain him? Things were very much in flux. Calvin and Farrell presented their articles on the organization of the church and its worship at Geneva to the city council in January 1537. Now, at this point, we have to stop and think, why would two Protestant reformers take their proposal as to how to organize the Christian church to the city council of, of Geneva. After all, what city council is responsible for organizing and maintaining order in churches? 
certainly not in our day. That, that's entirely unthinkable. But in that day, like as, as in all of Europe and many parts of the world, the idea that the political realm and the religious realm were separate was simply not within their thinking. It was, from everybody's viewpoint, it, of course the city council should be involved in uh, organizing churches and, and regulating worship and practice in churches. Again, very different from our day. Next slide. This document described the manner and frequency of their celebrations of the Eucharist, the reason for and the method of excommunication, the requirement to subscribe to the confession of faith, the use of congregational singing in the liturgy, and the revision of marriage laws. The requirement to subscribe to the confession of faith was for all citizens in Geneva, no exceptions. Whether you agreed with it or not, if the council passed all of uh, Farrell and Calvin's proposals, that was it. That was how it was going to be for everybody who lived within that city. Next slide. Now, if you were excommunicated from the church, you would have had to leave the city, as you would have been an outlaw. Calvin and Farrell's viewpoint was just like the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutherans, and the kingdom, kingdoms of Europe. There is no separation between membership in civil society or citizenship and church membership. All who live in a sovereign state must be the same religion. Now, the only people living in throughout Europe at that time who would have been of a different religion would have been Jews. And uh, we, we don't have time to go into all of what that entailed for Jews, but um, many of these uh, free cities like Geneva, Geneva Basel, Zurich, uh, Strasbourg, and other cities made laws. Um, for example, one of the Swiss cities made it a law that Jews could not remain in the city overnight. They were allowed in certain parts of the city during the day, and they could not remain in the city overnight, which meant they couldn't live there. Um, so you were either a Christian or you went elsewhere. And if you were a Christian and you wanted to live in that city, you had to subscribe and agree with the, uh, essentially the religion of the rulers. Next slide. The idea of Christendom, which we've talked about in previous um, discussions, was still the only way to define society. The only question was, would this Christendom be Roman Catholic or Protestant? In most countries at this time, the religion of the ruler determined the religion of the area over which he ruled. However, a controversy arose between the reformed churches in Bern, Zurich, and Geneva around the use of unleavened bread for communion. The council ordered Calvin and Farrell to use unleavened bread for the Easter Eucharist. Next slide. In protest, Calvin and Farrell refused to administer communion during the Easter service. This caused a riot during the service, and the next day, 
The council told Farrell and Calvin to leave Geneva. So even these reformers who were trying to get the city council to go along with what they proposed found themselves on the wrong side of the law, so to speak. Farrell went to Neuchâtel in Switzerland and Calvin went to Strasbourg in Eastern France. Strasbourg, again, was a free imperial city where several Protestant leaders had led a reform. Next slide. Calvin lived in Strasbourg for three years. Under Martin Bucer's influence, he compiled a book of French psalm paraphrases set to music for singing in the services. He also introduced a new order of service or liturgy for the Protestant churches. He published his commentary on Romans and a revised edition of his institutes. In August of 1540, he married Idolette de Burr, a widow with two children. Next slide. On July 28, 1542, Idolette gave birth to a son, Jacques, but he was born prematurely and survived only briefly. Idolette fell ill in 1545 and died on March 29, 1549. The marriage had lasted less than 10 years, lasted less than 10 years, and Calvin never married again. Next slide. Calvin wrote in a letter to a friend, I have been bereaved of the best friend of my life, of one who, if it has been so ordained, would willingly have shared not only my poverty, but also my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. So when he went back to Geneva, uh, he was not accepted. So despite being a, a famous Protestant reformer, scholar, and teacher, many did not accept him. He'd had to go back to Geneva um, after some successful ministry in Strasbourg, but in Geneva, he encountered bitter opposition. Around 1546, a group made up of wealthy, politically powerful, and interrelated families of Geneva opposed Calvin. One of the things about the order and rule that Calvin and Farrell had tried to establish in Geneva was, um, and and we'll get into this in a little more detail, was a very strict program of attendance at religious services, and they banned things like card playing, gambling, um, all the fun stuff. <laughs> uh, now, these wealthy, politically powerful, and interrelated families in Geneva made a lot of their fortune by selling alcohol, uh, manufacturing playing cards, and um, other things that added to the various amusements that were popular in that time period. And that was part of why they opposed Calvin. He was cutting into their profit-making activities. Calvin called them the libertines, people who felt that after being liberated through grace, they were now free from both church and civil law. Today, we might call them antinomians. Anti-law is essentially what antinomian means. Next slide. The Geneva City Council had approved a modified version of 
Calvin's ecclesiastical ordinances of the Church of Geneva. The council did not grant all that Calvin requested, but did place the administration of church discipline in the hands of church officials supported by the state instead of in the hands of the city council. The ordinances basic to all later Calvinistic organizations names four divinely sanctioned ministries instituted by our Lord for the government of his church. Next slide. These ministries are pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. The pastors selected on the basis of a test and with the approval of the city government were to proclaim the word of God, to instruct, admonish, exhort, and censure both in public and private, to administer the sacraments, and to enjoin brotherly corrections along with the elders and colleagues. Next slide. Now, the ministers of Geneva and the nearby villages were to hold weekly discussions as part of their ministry, and in each of the three parish churches in Geneva, there were three services on Sunday. There were preaching services on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. The weekday services were later held daily. From a modern viewpoint, the schedule in Geneva for all citizens looks monastic. You had to go to church every day. <laughs> it makes, makes me wonder how they got anything done <laughs> besides going to church. And in fact, Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, said, these reformers have liberated the nuns from the convent and they are promoting marriage among priests. But in doing so, they've turned all of society into a convent. Next slide. The ecclesiastical ordinances also called for the creation of the consistoire, consistory, an ecclesiastical court composed of the elders and the ministers. And again, we can see in this uh, Calvin's bent towards law and how he has applied the ideas from the study of law to church government and church structure. The city government retained the power to summon persons before the court and the consistory could judge only ecclesiastical matters having no civil jurisdiction. Originally, the court had the power to hand down sentences with excommunication as its most severe penalty. And some of those sentences involved corporal or physical punishments. Next slide. During his ministry in Geneva, Calvin preached over 2,000 sermons. Initially, he preached twice on Sunday and three times during the week. But this proved to be too heavy a burden, and late in 1542, the council allowed him to preach only once on Sunday. But in October of 1549, he was again required to preach twice on Sundays. Next slide. In addition, Calvin was required to preach every weekday of alternate weeks. His sermons lasted more than an hour each, and he did not use notes. <laughs> yes, 
He was quite a guy. <laughs> Catechism classes for youth were held at noon on Sunday in every parish. So think of this. Uh, the average Christian in Geneva had to attend three services on Sunday. And if he or she had children, they had to be in catechism at noon every Sunday. At the age of 16, young people who'd been baptized in infancy made their own profession of faith. Communion was celebrated in all three parish churches four times a year, on Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, and the first Sunday in September. And looking at this, we can see how um, many churches today uh, in the evangelical wing of the Protestant uh, churches uh, do only celebrate communion four times a year. Next slide. Calvin had wanted communion to be celebrated every week, but the Geneva Council did not grant that request. Unlike Luther, who basically retained most of the old mass and cut out only its objectionable parts, Calvin wrote a whole new liturgy, retaining only some of the structure and elements of the traditional mass. In his service, he attempted to restore the worship as he felt it had been in the ancient Christian church. Next slide. On the Sundays when communion was to be celebrated, the intercessory prayer with a lengthy paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer led to the communion rite. A consecration prayer, mostly of Calvin's own composition, was followed by the words of institution. In the accompanying exhortation, the minister restricted the communion to the faithful, a feature that later came to be known as the fencing of the tables. Next slide. In the exhortation, Calvin's theological view of the Lord's Supper is given in that Christ wishes to make us partakers of his own body and blood in order that we may possess him entirely in such a manner that he may live in us and we in him. And although we see only bread and wine, yet let us not doubt that he accomplishes spiritually in our souls all that he shows us externally by these visible signs. In other words, that he is heavenly bread to feed us and nourish us into life eternal. Now, if you contrast Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper with Luther, and with Zwingli, later, Luther and Calvin would argue over what exactly is happening in the Lord's Supper. Luther looked at Calvin's stance and said, you're essentially like Aldrich Zwingli. You know, you, you are looking at this as really just kind of a symbolic ritual that symbolizes for us the bread as Christ's body, and the wine as Christ's blood. But it's not anything like what I, Martin Luther, think of communion. So this was one area in which Luther and Calvin disagreed. And Luther and Calvin fell out, so to speak, over this matter, just as Wingley 
and Cal and uh, Luther rather had uh, disagreed. <clears throat> Next slide. The rite of baptism as inaugurated by Calvin differed from that of the Lutheran church. Calvin ha held that assurance of salvation does not depend upon participation in the sacraments as if justification consisted in it. So baptism doesn't save a person. Instead, baptism became in the Calvinistic or Reformed Church only a token of our union with Christ. All the alien hodgepodge and theatrical pomp were discarded, which is how Calvin uh, viewed the Roman Catholic approach to water baptism. It was of no importance to Calvin whether the candidate should be immersed or sprinkled. Next slide. Baptism of the children of believers as heirs of God's covenant with the fathers was retained. It was to be administered only by the clergy, and since it was not necessary for the salvation of a person whose eternal fate had been determined by God, as we'll get into next time, Calvin believes in predestination. Emergency baptism at the home of the infant was not permitted. If you recall, in those days, um, infant mortality was very high. And the traditional Roman Catholic practice was, if a baby had been born and death was imminent, this child would not survive, uh, a priest would come and baptize the child, or if no priest then the father could baptize the child because baptism saves you in the Roman Catholic view. But Calvin took a very different approach as we've seen. Next slide. The baptismal ceremony was confined to the church before the assembly of believers to stress the child's membership in the covenant people. No sponsors were required and no profession of faith was made for or on behalf of the infant. Catechism classes were provided by the church for the education of children and teenagers, and young people made their own profession of faith at the age of 16. And uh, this, this takes us in a di somewhat different direction, but later when we look at the Anabaptists, we will see that some Anabaptist groups took this approach. Uh, they incorporated some changes along with this approach in how to raise your children in the faith. Um, and of course, Anabaptists do not believe in baptizing infants. They only baptize persons who have made a profession of faith. But we will be discussing the Anabaptists in much more detail later on. Um, I'm stopping here because at this point, uh, and we'll take this up next time, um, we'll take a look in much more detail at Calvin's theology. We will talk about things like predestination, the elect, um, the absolute sovereignty of God, fundamental principles within Calvinism. Um, so I hope that uh, with some of the quotes that I provided, you see a little bit more of how Calvin was a real person. I know for myself, I think of Calvin as this stuffy, 
ecclesiastical figure in an ivory tower who's obviously brilliant, but his only concern is theology. And the fact is, he was a real person. He had difficulties in life, obviously, um, and he suffered like many of the other reformers in the sense that he had to move around Europe uh, because he often was not safe, often was not accepted. Um, and his attempt at reforming the Christian church led him into dangerous territory. But the next part that we'll take up for Calvin, we'll talk about the later parts of his life and his theology. Thank you.